Good morning, Platte Park Church. It's an honor to be with you again today. Please don't hate me if you're not a hymn person. I promise maybe next time Charlie can do more than just hymns. Thanks for calling me out on that one. We are halfway through Lent, which means hopefully whatever practice you've chosen to engage in this season or whatever you're choosing to give up is feeling more like a habit by now and a little bit less like a punishment. If you forgot that you wanted to do something for Lent, you're now at the point where it's not too late. There's still like a respectable amount of time where you can join in on this. So that's just a little PSA for all of you. We're continuing on in our Lenten journey today, and as a quick recap of where we've been the last few weeks, Stephen started us off by inviting us to examine with God our wilderness and all the ways that we're tempted to doubt God's voice and meet our needs apart from God on our own. Week two, we looked at Jesus' sorrow over Jerusalem and how God wants to gather all of us into God's arms and hold us and keep us safe and nurture us. But what keeps us from settling into that dependence is a lack of trust in who God is. And last week, Stephen reframed this idea of repentance, how it's more than just this feeling of regret, but it's this whole self turning back to God. The Greek word for that, repentance, is metanoia, and it's this very kind of kinetic, embodied view of what we do when we repent. And when you hear metanoia, it's visceral, like we are literally moving our whole self back to God, not just moving our head. And we're going to expand on that idea of metanoia today because our turning back towards God is at the heart of the entire invitation of Lent, which is this invitation to come home, this invitation to return, hear it, to the truth of who God is and the truth of who God has created us to be. And how we see God is always directly connected to how we see ourselves. And that's what we're going to explore today. And our lectionary brings us one of the most powerful ways that Jesus communicates who God is and how God loves us, which is through the parable that you likely have heard of called the prodigal son. Now, as we go, even though a lot of the story centers on the prodigal son, and we're going to go into the prodigal a lot, there are two other characters in this story that are important to know. There's the prodigal's older brother and the prodigal's father. And so scholars now refer to this as the parable of the father and his two sons. And that's going to be important as we get into this. But before we jump into the parable of the father and his two sons, I want you to keep something really, really important in your mind. Jesus told simple stories like this. He told parables a lot because they allowed him to communicate something that his listeners thought they already knew, but they didn't. Jesus told parables because they allowed him to communicate something his listeners thought they knew, but they actually didn't. It was a way of kind of bypassing their defenses and helping them hear something that they wouldn't have been open to had he just said it outright. It's a very powerful and effective communication tool. If you haven't heard the parable before. We're in the totally opposite position as Jesus' listeners because we're so familiar with these parables that we can miss the impact of what Jesus' listeners would have heard. 
we can miss the thing that he's trying to communicate because we're so familiar with the parable itself. And a lot of times we can treat these parables like some cutesy little Sunday school story, like, oh, yeah, the prodigal son. I remember that one. There is nothing cutesy or little about this story. This story would have shocked and disturbed Jesus' listeners. They are not expecting this, and they do not like it when they hear it. So keep that in mind as as we're going into this. There's nothing cutesy or little about this. This would have been shocking to his audience. So if you have a Bible, grab that and come with me to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. It's a long story, and so we're going to go through the whole thing. You can follow along on the screens as well. Jesus continued in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. It's pretty bold language for the NIV. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has filled the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is honestly a hard text to preach on because there is so much in it. We could have literally just talked about this one parable for the entire Lent series. It's that rich and that deep. There are entire books written on this passage 
This story inspired one of the greatest paintings by the Dutch master Rembrandt. It's considered one of his greatest works of all time, The Return of the Prodigal Son. There are entire books written about this painting that Rembrandt wrote, that Rembrandt painted based on this passage. So there's a lot we are not going to get to today. There's a lot we could get to that we can't. And so what we're going to focus in on is how this parable invites us into the heart of the Lenten journey of returning home to being beloved children in the house of our Father. That's where we're going. Some cultural background is important with this because it's easy to miss in our Western mindset how what the prodigal son does is so utterly and completely offensive to the father. By demanding his share of the inheritance, he essentially says to his father, you are dead to me. I don't need you. I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want to keep connected with you. Just give me my money and I'm out of here. You are dead to me. Scholars believe that how Jesus tells the story, how he phrases that the prodigal gathers all he has and goes to a distant country, means that he somehow cashed out his share of the inheritance. Either he sold, they think he sold the land. So instead of staying and working the family farm alongside his father and his brother and then caring for his father in his old age, as would have not just been the expectation but the norm of this time, this is what everyone is doing at this time, the prodigal instead sells his share, leaves the family, goes to a distant country, and then proceeds to lose it all by making what the kids at my preschool, my kids' preschool, <laughs> say are thumbs-down choices. <laughs> he is not making good choices. <laughs> the reason he loses the money is entirely because of his own choices. He doesn't just have a bad business deal or... You know, it's not a gap year for him where he's finding himself. Like, he loses his inheritance entirely because of his own bad choices. And that is that makes what Jesus is saying here scandalous. His listeners would have been so outraged that the prodigal son demands his inheritance from the father, that the father gives it to him, that he then leaves goes somewhere else, and then loses it all because of his wild living. We hear that and think like, ooh, that's sad. But it's not probably the first time we've heard something similar to this or along those lines. But for the first century audience, for the Jews that Jesus is talking to, this is completely out of their box. There are scholars to this day that wonder how in the world Jesus actually even told this parable because it is that offensive to this culture. This is a culture that had a deep reverence for parents, a deep respect for elders, and a very, very, very strong sense of the family and the duty that you had to your family. You don't leave your family like this. But we know, right, that the shock value has a purpose, that the point of a parable is to help us hear something that we think we know in a new way. The prodigal's complete collapse, and then his audacity to return home to the father, and the father's welcome and compassion of him, for him, are meant to make you shake your head in disbelief. It's meant to make you think, how can this be? This doesn't make sense. Because the only thing more outrageous than what the prodigal does is what the father does. 
The message paraphrases the father in verses 20 through 24 like this. When the prodigal was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. The prodigal doesn't even get... The father doesn't even get to hear the prodigal's pitch to come home as a hired servant because he's already restoring him to his position as a son. He doesn't even hear the pitch to come home as a hired servant because he's already restoring him to his position as a son. And what Jesus is ultimately doing with this parable is using it to tell us the story of God and us. This is the third parable in a row in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells about something being lost that's then found. When Jesus does that, we pay attention. He's telling us something about something being lost and something being found. And like all of scripture, this works in a lot of different ways. So in one sense, the story sums up the entire good news of the gospel, that we were lost and now we're found. We are all the prodigal who have left, who have been lost, who were dead, and now we're alive. The father saying this twice in the passage is a clear connection to the resurrection life that Jesus dies to give us. That's what we're going to celebrate in a few weeks at Easter. So it's showing us this is where we're going. We were dead in our sin, and now we're alive in God. That's how Paul puts it. But the lectionary brings us this parable at the peak of the Lenten season because it's also the continual story of us and God, of God and God's people. The reason we go through Lent every year in the first place is because we are prone to wander. We are a people that continually gets lost. We are my kids in Target that literally can never stay with the cart. Neither one, I don't know. And by loss, I don't mean we're, gonna, we're in danger of losing salvation or something like that. I mean we lose sight of who our Father is. And if we can't see our Father clearly, we can't see anything clearly. We can't live as sons and daughters. We can't love each other as ourselves. We can't care for this world in the way God designed us to. We stop feeling at home in our Father's house and we think that we have to go to a distant country to meet our needs. We have to leave. And this continual losing sight of God is at the core of what we see happen in the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. If you want, flip with me to Genesis 3. We're going to go through it quickly, so it's not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to guess that you know this story. What the enemy does as the serpent when he's talking to Eve in Genesis 3, is distort her picture of who God is. Did God really say that? You're certainly not going to die if you eat that. 
God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. All these are super manipulative, destructive lies. But the most poisonous part of what the serpent does here is start to shift how Eve experiences God. Starts to change how she sees him. It begins to fracture her sense of trust in God. Did God really say that? It begins to shift her sense of safety with God. You're not going to die. And it begins to make her question if she is completely and unconditionally loved by God. The idea that God might be holding out some knowledge from her because God doesn't want her to be loved by God. And so she begins to try to meet her needs apart from God. By covering themselves with fig leaves, Adam and Eve give us the very first example of humans trying to meet their needs apart from God. It's a picture of what we've been talking about this whole series, and it shows the separation that's happened. They no longer trust God to provide for them and think that they have to do it on their own. When they go on to hide from God in the next couple of verses, we learn the depth of what's actually been lost here in this fall is that they can no longer see God as God is. It's the opposite of what the serpent promised them. Their eyes aren't opened. They're blinded. They can no longer see God as God is. And as they're forced to leave Eden for their own protection, we learn that the essence of sin is separation from God, living apart from the God we're meant to live in deep, intimate communion with. We're meant to be at home in the Father's house. Because of sin, we cannot see God as God truly is. And we are beings who exist because God created us. Our entire sense of being is grounded in God. And so when we can't see God clearly, we can't see anything clearly. Ourselves, other people, the world. Philosopher and priest and somewhat radical thinker, Herbert McCabe says it like this, that sin creates almost like this funhouse mirror effect. And so instead of seeing God as God is, as this father who's compassionate and kind and loving and running down the road to meet us, we see God as this judge waiting to rip into us at the end of the driveway when we come home. We see this harsh condemnation instead of this loving, compassionate forgiveness because sin distorts how we see God. That's why Jesus spends almost his entire earthly ministry in both his words and his actions communicating this is who God is. This is who God is. That's why Jesus tells parables, because these people think they know who God is, and it's not who God is. They can't see God clearly. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the image of the mother hen. This is who God is, and this is what God does. That's what Jesus is doing here, too. Because ultimately, what Jesus wants us to find in this parable, what's been lost, is our experience of God. We don't see God as God actually is. And so he's telling us this parable so that we can see who the Father actually is, 
how the Father actually loves us. And when we begin to see God clearly, we can then see ourselves as we are, which is God's beloved children, created to be at home in the Father's house. That is the essence of who you are, is a child of God who is deeply and unconditionally loved. Strip away everything that you do, everything that you will do in your whole life. That is the essence of who you are. A child of God who is deeply, unconditionally loved, meant to be at home in the house of the Father. And we see this played out in the parable that neither son, neither brother, sees their father as their father really is. They don't see their father clearly. And again, when we lose sight of who our father is, we can't live as sons. We, can't, we don't feel at home in the father's house. What we see is that both brothers see their father's love as conditional, which means they begin to experience him not as this forgiving father running down the road, but as this taskmaster who rewo- whose love depends on their behavior. We see this in both brothers. The younger brother concludes he's lost his father's love through his bad choices. So when he decides to come home, his thought is, I'll go home as a hired servant. I'll tell my father, I understand the consequences of what I've done. Just make me like one of your hired servants. He doesn't even expect that the father would even think about restoring him to being a son because he knows I've gambled it all away. I've lost my inheritance. I've lost my honor. And he thinks he's lost his sonship and his father's love for him as a son because he sees the father as conditional. And that makes sense in the cultural context of this parable, right? The older brother, on the other hand, thinks he's earned his father's love through his good behavior, which explains why he rages when the prodigal comes back and gets a party. Like, the older brother's reaction is really the only thing that makes sense to us in this parable, right? Like, if you're the older brother, you're like, come on. And he tells the father in verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. From what we know of the father, we can guess probably he didn't treat the older brother like a slave. He probably wasn't ordering him around. But because the older brother sees him as conditional, he sees him as a taskmaster, and so the older brother sees himself as a slave. The difference between a son and a servant is their experience with the father. And this matters for us because the ultimate Lenten invitation is to come home, to return to living as the beloved children of God that we are. You don't have to get there. You already are there. This entire story is about coming home to the truth of God's unconditional, all-forgiving love for us. And the wilderness of the Lenten season allows God to show us where we've gotten lost, where we aren't seeing God clearly. And therefore, we're trying to meet our own needs apart from God. We're running off to a distant country, squandering our inheritance, and looking for the very thing that we already have right here. 
again, we're not talking about losing salvation. We're talking about losing the invitation, losing our sense of this intimate communion with God that we're invited to live all of life in. Are you living at home in God's house as a beloved child? Or are you trying to earn God's love as a hired servant? We examine that question so that God can help us see God as God truly is. Because by being honest about our lostness, where we're not seeing God clearly, we're able to more fully receive how we're found. And we are found. Jesus doesn't tell the parable like this because he's literally in the middle of the mission. But like the prodigal, Jesus is the son who leaves home, goes to a distant country, but not out of rebellion, out of rescue, to bring all of the prodigals back home again. And the father's heart here is for you to come home. It's always been the father's heart. He's running down the path to embrace you. He can't wait to wrap his arms around you. His heart's beating out of his chest because he's so happy that his beloved child is home. And when we, like the prodigal, try to explain that we're not worthy of being home and we're not worthy of being called daughters or sons anymore, he's not even listening because he's already restoring us to that place. Scholars think that the ring on the prodigal's finger is the family ring, showing that he's back in This is who God is. This is how God loves us. And the whole self-turning of metanoia, this heart of this repentance journey, is learning to trust in that unconditional, all-forgiving love. It's letting God show us where we're like the two sons, where we've lost sight of who our father is. It's letting God reveal kind of those funhouse mirror distortions that prevent us from seeing God as God is. Because who God is, is the Father sprinting down the road to welcome you home. It's the Father celebrating your return, not condemning your departure. And so the question I invite you to take into your conversation with God is what is keeping me from feeling at home in my Father's house? The truth is that you are at home in your father's house. But what is keeping you from feeling that? In the same way that we can't settle into God holding us like a mother hen if we don't trust God, we can't feel at home in our father's house if we don't see God, experience God, as the loving prodigal father in this story. What keeps me from feeling at home in my father's house? Am I, like the prodigal, convinced that I'm unworthy of God's love, and so I'm trying to come home and earn it like a hired servant? Or am I, like the older brother, convinced that God gives everyone what they deserve, so I have to continually work for God's affection and attention by my behavior? What keeps you from being at home in your father's house?
let God lead you into the heart of that conversation so that in a few weeks when we celebrate Easter, you can allow yourself to really be caught up in God's embrace and God's celebration of your return home. And we can live more fully and more freely as God's beloved sons and daughters. Pat Park, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gift of this day. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for being a father who so completely and unconditionally loves and adores his children. Thank you that your heart is always for us to come home, to experience you as we truly are. God, guide us on this journey. Show us what keeps us from feeling at home in your house so that we may more freely and fully live as your beloved children. We love you, God. We trust you. We pray this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.